Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 23. We're going to take up about the first 15 verses in this audio. We're going to talk about how Jesus has turned away from the Pharisees, denouncing them, and now he's going to start teaching his disciples and the crowd, the disciples who are already following him and many in the crowd who were persuadable at least. Of course, the whole context of this is Passion Week. This is Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus is teaching in the temple and he's got three more days to live. And he's going to refer to the Pharisees mainly in the third person because he's going to be warning the crowd against the Pharisees. So he's still very anti, some some teaching that is very, very much anti-Pharisee. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 2. We're going to finish up, by the way, with... I'm going to take up for the first two of the seven woes. The seven woes is the basic focus of this chapter. Woe on the Pharisees as Jesus prepares for the Olivet Discourse, in which case he's going to tell the disciples that the Pharisees are going to have a lot of woe because their city is going to be destroyed in AD 70, one generation away. So Matthew 23, verses 1 through 2, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. You see, he's turned away from the Pharisees. Now he's talking to the crowds. The people who were probably thinking this might be the Messiah and to his disciples, those who had followed him closely. And Jesus says this, the scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Now the chair meant they, they were the authorized successor of Moses. Adam Clark says they sat there formerly by divine appointment. Now they sit there by divine permission. God's just putting up with them, interpreting Moses because Moses was speaking from God, but the Pharisees were not speaking from God. Now why did... Jesus say that the scribes and Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses is because Jewish teachers stood to read, but they sat to expound scripture, as Jesus did in the in the synagogue at Capernaum. He sat down to read the scripture, to to teach the scripture to them. So Jesus is now in the temple complex. This is still on Tuesday, the great day of all the teaching that he did on Tuesday in Passion Week, the last week of his life. Now, what was Jesus's purpose? He wanted to keep the people from falling into error after they had seen the scribes and Pharisees' humiliation. and the Sadducees' humiliation, Jesus had humiliated the bad guys, but now he wanted to keep them from going too far and think that he was the enemy of Moses. Just because he was the opponent of the Pharisees did not mean he was the enemy of Moses. He said the law, every stroke and every dot, every jot and tittle of the law was a good law given by God, wasn't going to be done away with until all was accomplished on the cross when he died on the cross. So at that time, the law was still in effect. Moses was a good guy. And what he's trying to say is, look, it's not that God's religion is bad. It's that the leaders of God's religion is bad. The disciples he was talking to were not just the 12 apostles, but many disciples who had followed him there into Jerusalem. Now, this expression, scribes and the Pharisees, is used often in the scriptures, and it's confusing if unless you just think of it this way. Some scribes were Pharisees and some Pharisees were scribes. Some scribes were not Pharisees and some Pharisees were not scribes. There was an overlap between the two, but not a complete overlap. The Pharisees were a religious school of thought. They were schools. They did theology and law and that kind of stuff. The scribes were an occupation, not a school of thought, but an occupation. They copied manuscripts. They notarized documents and so forth. So the two... The two categories overlap, and they're used together a lot in the Gospels. Matthew 23, verse 3, Jesus continues, Therefore do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach. Now this is an interesting passage here. It's the only one of the synoptic Gospels in which Jesus says this, Do as they do, do as they say, but don't do as they do. 
Now, when he says, do whatever they tell you, this is assumes, of course, that they are teaching the law of Moses. I, every now and then the Pharisees would teach the law of Moses instead of their tradition. I'm sure he's not telling the Pharisees, the, the crowds, to do the traditions that the, that the Pharisees tell them about, but rather the law of Moses. When the Pharisees are teaching the law of Moses, do that and observe it. But don't do what they do because they're total hypocrites. They don't practice what they teach, which is another way of saying they're freaking hypocrites. Everybody hates a hypocrite. This makes sense that Jesus, that Matthew would tell the listeners to do what the Pharisees tell you because this book was written for Jews. It's, that was its special audience. Jameson Fawcett Brown makes this comment, so it's natural that Matthew would tell the Jews that he was writing to do, writing to, look, don't disobey the Pharisees, assuming they're teaching the law of Moses, because Jews are supposed to obey the law of Moses. And Jesus is going to tell them later, of course, until all is accomplished on the cross, in which case he's the new lawgiver and Moses' law is superseded. This, of course, is according to New Covenant theology, which is what I adhere to. I realize reformers are not going to like what I just said. Covenant theology people... Well, he who controls the microphone controls the spin. Matthew 23, verse 4. They, the Pharisees, Jesus is continuing here. They, the Pharisees, tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. Ooh, don't you hate somebody like that? So the loads that they were putting on people's shoulders were, was not the law of Moses. That was the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, that oral tradition which they erroneously claimed was handed down from Moses until their time. These additions to the law of Moses. Those were the loads that they were putting on people's shoulders. This practice of the Pharisees was referred to by Peter at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, verse 10. Now then, Peter says, why are you, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? In other words, we're not going to make the early church follow this pharisaical laws because they're not going to be able to do it as Gentiles and neither us our, or our ancestors, our, us Jews, we couldn't do it. We weren't able to bear these loads. Can't spit out an apricot on Saturday. Can't walk so far on Saturday. You can, you can grind the grain in the palm of your hand on Saturday, but you can't pinch it between your fingers on Saturday. All this nonsense. I might have the laws wrong, but they're all totally, you can tithe. You're supposed to tithe mint and dill and cumin. Matthew 23, 5. They do everything to be observed by others. Again, he's referring to the hypocrisy here and their attitudes, the Pharisees. They do everything to be observed by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. A phylactery was a wooden box or a box. might not have been wooden. A box that contained written scriptures in the box. And they would put the phylactery one right between their eyes on their forehead, strap it onto their head, and they would put a phylactery on their left arm between their shoulder and their elbow because there the phylactery would be close to their heart. And what they did is they took an Old Testament scripture, and I unfortunately don't have it in front of me, but the scripture that says you should always observe the law and keep it close to your heart. And they took that literally example of hyper-literal interpretation that turns out to be nonsense because they Jesus meant for them to read the law and memorize it and put it in their heart, not to put it in a wooden box, write it down on a piece of paper and put it in a wooden box. But that's what they did. And they're not satisfied just to have a little wooden box. They make the, the little wooden box, the phylactery, bigger and bigger and bigger so everybody would see it. Ooh, there must be a lot of scripture in there. That man must really be, must really love the word because he's carrying it around in his wooden box on his forehead and on his arm. 
they enlarge their tassels. When the tassel is referring to a command in Numbers, chapter 15, verses 37 through 40. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. These will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you may remember all the Lord's commands and obey them and not become unfaithful by following your own heart and your own eyes. This way you will remember and obey all my commands and be holy to your God. Now, this was a simple object lesson for the Jews to remember to keep the law, wear tassels with the Pharisees, instead of referring to the original purpose of the law, perverted the original purpose of the law by making these tassels something which would cause people to draw attention to the Pharisees so that they could say, look at me, I'm a big shot follower of the law. I am a holy person. I am a righteous person. I am a Pharisee. And it wasn't enough just to do a tassel like numbers required, but they got to make the tassel longer and longer and longer to make sure everybody saw it. The phylacteries, by the way, had scriptures, and they know, the scholars know what the scriptures are, at least they know the four books they're from. There's a little dispute about what verses are put in the phylacteries. In Exodus, there's two scriptures from Exodus 13, and one from Deuteronomy 6, and one from Deuteronomy 11. Matthew 12. 23 verses 6 through 7. They, Jesus continues, referring to the Pharisees, the Pharisees loved the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called a rabbi by people. Now, if you went to a banquet, the Jews made the seating arrangements such so that the people knew who were the great men. I guess they would seat them at the head of the table. We do the same thing in the West, have Honored in China, they do the same thing. There's always an honor. I remember going in China. I always sat in the same place. They'd always take me to the same place, and it was directly opposite the door of the little room, but not at 12 o'clock. It was at one o'clock high, and the host would always sit to my right. And it was years before I realized that I was sitting in the honored place at the banquet because I was the, the foreigner, the foreign expert, come to enlighten the Chinese with all my learning. Place of honor. They even had places of honors and taxis back right. I don't know why. I tried to climb in the front seat one day. Oh, no, 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 no. you got to sit in the back at the right. The place of honor. Human beings love this kind of stuff. The Pharisees love the place of honor at banquets. Uh, Luke 14, 7 through 4. This is the parable of the Great Supper. Not the parable of the wedding feast, but the parable of the Great Supper. Luke refers to best places at banquets. He told a parable, Luke says, he referring to Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place. So you see, there were places of honor. And the Pharisees loved that. Now they loved the front seats in the synagogue. Those were the seats of the senior men. They were turned toward the people, not facing the ark. They always had an ark where the holy books were kept at the front. And they would put their backs to the ark and face the people and sit on a bench. This reminds me of Protestant churches they got a big throne there for the big shot pastor that sits in the middle has got a winged on it you know the winged throne and to the left and the right of the winged thrones there's little chairs littler chairs they might not be little but they're smaller and in those chairs maybe the elders will sit or the guest preacher or the guest rabbi no, excuse me the best preacher the guest preacher that would come in got to give honor this is why I don't believe in church furniture, because I don't believe in this. This It reminds me of Phariseeism. Why do we put somebody up, and in the next thing you know, he's going to be shacked up with his secretary. You put somebody up like that, or got his hand in the till. You put people like that up, and pretty soon, not all, of course, because there are some very honorable men who have this furniture. I realize that, but there's a lot of them 
you just encourage that attitude of the clergy laity distinction. There's somebody better than the rest of the people out there because we gave them a place of honor. And who are the progenitors of this? The Pharisees in the synagogues, places of honor. Why would we want to reproduce that in our Protestant churches? The Pharisees love greetings in the marketplaces. John Gill says they strolled where there were a lot of people so that people would take notice of them. And people would show them marks of respect, such as stretching out the hand, uncovering the head, bowing the knee. And then the Pharisees loved to be called rabbi. Rabbi, of course, means teacher. Some translations, in fact, I think the Holman Christian Study Bible does. They do uh, translate it as teacher. A rabbi was looked on as an, an infallible oracle in religious matters. And so pretty soon... The rabbis usurped not only the law, but they usurped God himself, as Adam Clark points out. So this is a pretty damning indictment of the, the Pharisees. And Jesus is warning the people, don't follow these guys. Chapter 23 of Matthew, verses 8 through 10. But as for you, again talking to the people and to his disciples, do not be called rabbi because you have one teacher. And that teacher is either God the Father or Jesus is not really clear here. But at any rate, you don't call a human being rabbi because you've got a God who's your rabbi. And you are all brothers. Don't call somebody rabbi because that sets one teacher, one member of the group above the other members of the group. You're all brothers, so one is not supposed to be set above another. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father. That's God the Father. And that, of course, or, or I don't shouldn't say of course, that perhaps should be referring to Ab who was the father of the Sanhedrin, the Ab, the A-B. I, don't, I guess I'm pronouncing that right. He was next after the Nasi, or president of the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus might have been referring to that. Don't call some, some big shot leader of the Sanhedrin, give him his title. Don't do that. The title of rabbi never showed up before the time of Philel and Shammai, the two schools of the Pharisees. But by the time the school, two schools of the Pharisees were there, the Pharisees made sure that everybody's calling them rabbi, which had the sense of a quote-unquote infallible teacher. Now, Jesus says you're all brothers. Now, again, he's training the disciples, getting them ready to establish the church. So we're all brothers in the church, and we're not supposed to call anybody a rabbi. So what do we do? We call our leaders pastor, doctor, reverend, right reverend, father, bishop. Oh, we've got names. Apostle, most apostolic right reverend, his holiness. On and on and on we use these honorific titles. And are we really supposed to do that considering that Jesus says in this verse, don't call anybody rabbi because you're all brothers. I've often been fascinated by that. I remember one time a friend of mine introduced me to his Episcopal neighbor. He was a little bit younger than me. And he kept calling him Father David. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to call you Father David for two reasons. One is you're younger than me. And two... Jesus said, don't call anybody rabbi because you're all brothers, Don't, which I interpret as the meaning, don't give somebody an honorific title. So I kept calling that guy David. Hi, David. Hi, David. And I think I was getting under his skin because I could tell he didn't like it. I don't care. I'm not going to call him David. Now, I will, if I'm writing a letter, I'll, I'll put the title on there just out of a matter of courtesy. And I guess if somebody insisted on it, I, I don't know if I'd know. I, I don't know. I don't think I would do it. I don't think people usually don't insist on that kind of thing. Just yesterday, I was at a business meeting, and one of the women in the meeting said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I've been addressing you as Mr. Trotter." She's younger than she was, but she's younger than me. She said, "I've been addressing you as Mr. Trotter, and I saw in your email you're a doctor." I said, "I could care less. Call me Dan. I don't care about that kind of nonsense." 
Now, I don't, I don't believe th- this is referring to in the church. You are all brothers. It's not talking about in society, in business. I call, if somebody in a university is a doctor, I call him doctor. If he's president, I call him president. I'll give an honorific title to somebody in the world because the world is stratified. It's got hierarchy. I understand that, and I give honor where honor is due. Not a problem. But in the church, I don't call anybody but by their first name including the big shot leader. <laughs> of course, I don't have big shot leaders in the churches I go to, but, but if, you know, if he's an elder, I don't call him Elder Smith. I call him John. Now, here's the next question. How do people justify that? Well, there's an argument that can be made for allowing pastors to use titles. And, of course, there must be an argument because everybody does it. Here's what my NIV study Bible says. The warning is against seeking titles of honor to foster pride. Obviously, we should avoid unreasonable literalism in applying such commands. Oh, really? Unreasonable literalism. Why is that unreasonable literalism? He says, don't call anybody rabbi. Don't do it. That's unreasonable literalism? Oh, so here's, this is, this is how the argument, let me make the argument if I were trying to justify honorific titles for church leaders. I would say this. Jesus was talking about the Pharisees who used the term rabbi, which meant infallible teacher. But when we call our pastor, pastor, we are not giving that word the same sense as the Jews gave rabbi because we don't consider our pastor the infallible teacher. And our pastor is a humble man. Therefore, we can do it. Well, point number one is that I hate to say it, but most, I don't know about most, but many, many, many Christians do consider their leader their one-man pastor, their pastor pope, the infallible teacher, whatever he says goes, and they're scared to death to disagree with him, and they, and they only talk behind his back to their friends, but they're not going to talk to his face when they disagree with him. Now, I know that's not, a, that's, not, that's not universal, but it happens a lot. It happens an awful lot because there's that clergy-lady distinction. There's that hierarchy there. But that's how I would justify it. But I think that's a weak, weak justification to say, my pastor's not proud, but the Jews were proud. When you start doing that, when you start elevating a pastor, you start paying him a salary, and the salary gets bigger, and you're starting to say, you know, you start giving him all these titles. That is just one more possibility. He's going to get the big head. He's going to end up shacked up with his secretary or got his hand in the till. And I, listen, I know that most pastors don't do that. I understand that, and I know there's a lot of godly people, all my life I've known them, who call themselves pastor. Well, they can get their jollies by being called pastor by somebody else, because I'm not going to do it, because I don't think, I think Jesus, a perfectly reasonable application of this verse is, you don't call religious leaders with titles. Let's go to Matthew 23, verses 11 through 12. The greatest among you will be your servant, Jesus continues. And again, he's continued with this idea of, you're all brothers, don't give anybody a title. So then he says, the greatest among you, instead of looking for a title, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So instead of looking for a title, why don't you try humbling yourself before your brothers and serving them, and then you'll be great, and you won't need a title. You won't need somebody to call you rabbi, pastor, reverend, or his holiness. You won't need that, because you're serving them, and they will love you, and they will follow your example. They will follow you into the the depths of hell in order to rescue a soul because you have cred with them. You have led by example, by the quality of your life, the quality of your spirituality. That's how, why people follow you, not because you have some frippin' religious title. Whoever exalts himself, and again, what's the context here? Exalts himself by giving himself a title like rabbi or, or like master, he says in the previous verse. Whoever exalts himself, we be humble. Okay, you want a title? 
you're asking yourself to be humbled, pastor. You're asking for it. Whoever humbles themselves will be exalted, as I just said. You humble yourself to serve your brethren, they will they will they'll treat you like your brother, and they will die for you. Now, this idea to be great by being a servant, let's read several scriptures. i got four here, and some of them might be parallels. It doesn't matter. I'll just read them to you to show the theme, how strong this theme is in the scripture. Matthew 20, verse 27. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Luke chapter 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Mark 10, verse 44. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. Luke 18, verse 14. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The first will be last, and the last will be first. It's the same idea, and we like to quote that all the time. Enough of this pride business. Enough of this arrogance. You know, if you, I used to say that if you take the sins of the world or the sins of the average person, actually, they usually either sex or money. But if you want to generalize even more than that and abstract a little bit more generally than that, it's pride. Money sins, financial crimes and sins, is due to pride. Sexual sins, same thing. Pride. People want to run their own life without God. Pride, pride, pride. And religious titles tend to exalt pride. So why do we do that? Matthew 23, verse 13. Now, this is going to be one of the first seven woes in this chapter. Where This is his last teaching before he goes out to the Mount of Olives on Tuesday night and gives the Olivet Discourse. So he's He's now giving seven woes to the Pharisees, and now there must have been some Pharisees in the crowd. He's quit talking to them directly by addressing his followers, his disciples, and also the crowd that had followed Jesus into the city. And now he's turned to direct, address the Pharisees, and he's going to give them seven woes. He's going. This is this is this is the the culmination of his two-day-long denunciation of the Jewish religious leaders in, in Jerusalem. So he's going to give them seven woes, and we don't have time to do them all, but we're going to do the first two here in verses, thir- in, uh, the, in verses 13 through 15. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Apparently there was still some scribes and Pharisees hanging around listening to him teach the crowd, and so he turns from the crowd and looks at them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people. For you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. It was bad enough that the Pharisees didn't believe themselves. But worse than that, they did everything they could to keep people from believing in Jesus, to keep them from going in. Now we go to verse 14 in Matthew 23. What I just gave you about locking up the kingdom, that's the first woe. The second woe, verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and make long prayers just for show. This is why you will receive a harsher punishment. Now, there's a textual problem here. Some manuscripts don't have this verse, and the NIV actually completely leaves it out. Holman Christian Study Bible leaves it in, but they bracket it, and they make a, a marginal note that some manuscripts, other manuscripts, omit this bracketed text. So it's questionable whether this Jesus actually said this. But I'm going to assume it's good here, because why not? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you devour widows' houses, you steal their money. I had a high school friend that devoured widows' houses. He devoured, uh, let's see, two widows that I know of their whole life savings. Made them penniless. Christian man. Ended up in jail for it, too. Spent five years in a federal slammer. There's nothing worse than doing that, devouring a widow's house. And you make long prayers just for show. 
Jesus' teaching was exactly the opposite of the rabbis. Here's a quote from John Gill, quoting a rabbi. John Gill's the rabbinic expert. This is what the rabbi said. Three things prolong a man's days and years. He that is long in his prayer. So you want to live longer? Pray longer, according to the Pharisees. Doesn't matter what you say, just babble on, make a bunch of vain repetitions. But as long as you make it long, superstitiously, superstitiously, that will make you live a long life. Matthew 6, 7, Jesus refers to this Pharisaic practice. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. So idolaters were going on and on and on. The longer the prayer, the better, more likely the God is going to answer. So it wasn't just Jews that were doing this. Idolaters were doing it. Don't do that. And by the way, this verse here, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters. I have heard cessationist types say, this is talking about speaking in tongues. No, it is is not. That is absurd and moronic. An idolater is not going to be speaking in tongues to God. Was Paul, the apostle, babbling when he says, I speak in tongues with you more than you all? I don't think so. So don't say stupid things. You know, if you want to disagree on the theology of speaking in tongues, that's okay. But don't be an idiot about it. Now, Jesus tells them that these Pharisees who devour widows' houses and make long prayers just for show will receive a harsher punishment. And this shows that there are degrees of punishment. And the reason this is important is because there are so many Christians who buy into this myth. All sins are alike. No, they are not. They're only alike in one aspect. A little sin and a big sin, if you violate one or the other, it doesn't matter which, you will end up in hell if you don't have Jesus cover your sins. So in that sense, sins are equal. They're all able, a transgression of any of them is able to get you into hell. It doesn't matter whether it's big or large, but now... As for the temporal aspect of sins or crimes, it does make a difference. Would you rather have somebody shoplift from your store or rape your wife? I mean, come on. That's just common sense. And But it's amazing how a lot of times myths will override common sense. No, all laws are not alike. Matthew 23, verse 15, and we'll shut it down after this verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Let's see, that is the third woe. I said two woes. Depends on whether verse 14 is part of the text or not. So we're going to take this as the third woe. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, in verse 15. You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Now, travel, land, and sea is a proverbial expression. It's like our English proverb, leave no stone unturned. It means the same thing. You do whatever you can to make a proselyte, and he ends up twice as fit for hell as you are. These proselytes were really, they were really something. First of all, let's talk about what a proselyte is. That was somebody who was converted to the Jewish faith. I mean, there's two types of proselytes. This is according to John Gill. There was a proselyte of the gate. They were subject to a, a subset of the requirements of the law, but not circumcision. So they kept some of the law, but not all of it, and they didn't keep circumcision. That's a proselyte of the gate. Then we'll call that a little p proselyte. Then there's a capital P proselyte, a super proselyte, a big proselyte, a proselyte of righteousness, they were called. They were subject to all the requirements of the law, including circumcision, just like any Jewish citizen would be. And this is the type, according to John Gill, that Jesus was referring to, trying to turn Gentiles into Jews. Now, these proselytes, according to Adam Clark, were considered by the Jewish nation to be the scabs of Israel. They were thought to hinder the coming of the Messiah. Now, what about their character? Why are they, these proselytes twice as fit for hell as, the, as your ordinary Pharisee was? Well, here's a good quote from Justin Martyr, the second century Christian apologist, which shows that. This is what Justin Martyr says. This is quoted by Adam Clark. The proselytes 
did not only disbelieve Christ's doctrine, but were abundantly more blasphemous against him than the Jews themselves, endeavoring to torment and cut off the Christians wherever they could, they being in this the instrument of the scribes and Pharisees. So Justin Martin says they were worse than the Jews themselves. That's exactly what Jesus said. And Adam Clark says that Josephus, in Josephus there's other evidence of how the proselytes were worse than the Jews themselves. Finished now. I'm finished now with the first 15 verses of Matthew 23. We'll take up the other five woes in the last part of Matthew chapter 23 in our next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. 